When it's time to fly, explore, and enjoy, it's also a time to learn. You see, we have long been deeply connected to nature, and once we understand our responsibility to care for nature, we'll understand that it's time to give back. Find your way back to unique experiences that connect us all. Please visit hawaiicovid19.com slash travel for the latest requirements before traveling to Hawaii. It's a wonderful aloha afternoon here in Honolulu, Hawaii. With me, Peter Talo in College Station, Texas. Uh, today is March 16th, one day before St. Patrick's Day. You can see Peter is already all ready for tomorrow. And uh, this is uh, Jürgen Steinmetz from eTurbo News and Livestream.travel in Honolulu. Good afternoon, Peter. Good evening, better. How are you? Good evening. I'm just doing great. Welcome. Uh, good evening from Texas. And yes, you're right. Matter of fact, I wanted to combine honor you and also honor our Irish friends. So um, I'm wearing a green Aloha shirt. That way <laughs> I combine uh, the best of Hawaii with the best of Ireland. Wow, you're, you're, you're really good. <laughs> <laughs> so I try to have something symbolic, but I think, you know, even though most of us are not Irish, um, I think St. Patrick's Day kind of has a universal appeal, besides the fact that people like to go out and drink. But um, the fact is that maybe this is a time when we're going to really see the earth being a little bit, you know, we talk about the luck of the Irish, and maybe uh, the earth will be a little bit lucky, and we're going to start tomorrow, we'll be turning the corner on the COVID situation. Um, we need to go back to having festivals. And now I know it's going to be hard because we have to um, create festivals where people will have social distancing. We don't want to create spreader events um, such as the problems that they had in Brazil with Carnival. But we do need to give people reasons to travel. And if we can create ways for people to begin to celebrate holidays again, that's really going to be valuable. Uh, we have St. Patrick's Day, uh, Passover is coming up, the Easter holidays are coming up. And these are ways to just get people back, taking almost baby steps into travel again, maybe seeing family, seeing some friends. That's, I think that's really important. So in that sense, we're all Irish tomorrow. <laughs> No, absolutely. And, and today, if you look through the news, it's, uh, you know, the cruise industry has made some headlines with both Viking uh, Cruise Line and also Princess Cruise Line pausing operation out of Seattle to Alaska and other destinations. So it looks like cruising is not really ready to come back, even though we heard earlier this year that cruise, cruises are sold out. So I guess there's going to be a lot of uh, postponements in that industry and see how it goes. So Frankfurt Airport, of course, uh, says their revenue in 2020 is very much impacted by COVID-19. And I think that's understood. And uh, Frankfurt Airport, of course, has airports all over the world. So they're really a, a trendsetter in the world when it comes to airport operation and also um, able to share statistics. Now the so American airports the are, uh, are uh, saying that even though they don't have a lot of foreign travel, domestic travel in the U.S. has gone up radically. In fact, I believe last week was the best week um, since March of 2020 for airline travel. But it's, it's mainly domestic. 
Uh, and I can understand that because you don't know if a country is going to close down, if there are going to be problems getting home, whatever. So if you're in your own country, you have less problems of bureaucracy. But um, there is domestic travel. Of course, the big issue, and that's something that really has to be thought through, and we've mentioned this before, is terminals. And um, one of the big problems in international travel is that a lot of airlines insist you be there three hours ahead of time. People don't want to spend three hours in a terminal. And so maybe we need to come up with some way to streamline that process so that people can get in and out of terminals quickly and um, you know get onto the plane. So that's going to be uh, one of the maybe changes. And on the tra on the cruise industry, yeah, I wonder if you know a lot of people have signed up. I wonder if they're forced to postpone if they're going to want to continue, or if they're going to say, you know what, give me my money back. Because, um, you know, maybe you were going out on a cruise next week and you had taken the time off from work. And then all of a sudden the cruise is postponed. They say, well, we're going to do this at the end of June, but you can't take another week off from work. So now you have a problem of, you know, coordinating your travel with your professional status or your family status, or you had somebody take care of your children and all of a sudden, you know, you're not going and you pay this person to house sit or babysit. Those are real problems when they change these things. Yeah, and of course, this is happening to many people, not, not only in the cruise, also in the aviation industry. I think it happened to you even when you booked your flight to Berlin last year and couldn't yes. go. And you still have this voucher and it's probably, it may be expiring a year. Maybe it's already expired. No, it's still good, but it's uh, that's nine hundred dollars that United Airlines has that they won't give me back. Yeah. And do you blame them in this situation? Pardon? Do you blame them in this situation? I understand why they don't want to do it, but on the other hand, they have my money now for a year, no interest, and I don't know if I'll ever see that money or not. So you know, it's it, it's a problem to say the well, least. Well, if, you lived, if you lived in some European countries, that's actually a good thing because I understand if you put money in the bank, there's now a negative interest. So you actually yes, have to right. pay the bank. Yes. Yes. And as you know, um, the um, Biden administration is thinking the same thing. Um, and that's going to be another issue in the United States because, you know, they're talking about a major rate rise in taxes, including on all small businesses. And I really wonder, as we're just getting over all the misery of COVID, how well people are going to want to travel if their taxes go up by a considerable amount. Um, and so, and will we have negative interest? And so both of those really may make people a little bit afraid to travel. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're not really ready yet. Uh, the travel industry is still very much crippled. And I think we once we deal with Corona, with vaccine, um, we're going to go to the next step. Um, I, I really don't think... vaccines, certainly it's interesting what's going on in Europe with the whole AstraZeneca situation. So many countries now, I believe, of France and Germany and Holland and Italy, if I'm not mistaken, have decided to suspend the use. And somebody told me, I, I haven't had a chance to... Every hour you have to look at the news, that um, they're now suspending the use of AstraZeneca across Europe. If that's true, and I'm not sure it's true, so I want to make that clear, that's really going to be a step backwards for Europe. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
you know, and, and you wonder how that's going to, will that start, you know, spread. The U.S., we've done a pretty good job. We're, we're, we're more and more people are getting vaccinated. I do think the government is right. We will be able to have almost every adult vaccinated in the United States by the end of May. And the American vaccines, the, the three that are basically used here, seem to be working quite well. And now, of course, the big news in and it really will affect tourism also, is Moderna is testing, um, it's in the process of testing one from 11 to 17, and now they're testing one from six months of age until 11. And if that happens, that we have a vaccine, that means children will be able to go back to school, that we will, you know, much of the misery that came from uh, Corona or COVID will go away. And so um, let's hope that they're successful in this, uh, the American vaccines have been quite good. Yes, and that is definitely uh, the case because it's not only the European and the British, also there are issues with the Chinese version, Yes, I understand. And uh, so I haven't heard very, a lot of bad things about the Sputnik from Russia. No. Looks like they're doing pretty well. Yes, it was interesting though today, the foreign minister of Israel flew to Moscow at uh, Moscow's request to, to meet with the foreign minister of Russia to talk about joint efforts in the Russian vaccine. So um, I, Israel doesn't need to, they, they're doing a great job of vaccinating, but I think they want the Israelis to approve the Russian vaccine so that it can be used in other parts of maybe Africa and in South America. And yes, I have not heard much negative about the Sputnik vaccine, not like the Chinese. That one's, a, but it's it's interesting that the Russians are really seeing this as a export item and possibly something for the use of diplomacy. In other words, to give them a better name. Right. Well, it's <laughs> it's a lot of politics involved, also in oh, the Corona tremendously, part, you know? tremendously. And we see, um, you know, a, I think in Germany. Uh, Merkel's party lost um, some important state elections. You would know that better than me. But, um, and supposedly the way the, the American and British press are saying it, is they lost because they don't like the way she's handling the um, corona issue. And, the, and, and so it was kind of an anti, it wasn't really anti her, it was anti her handling of COVID. Now right. I'm not sure she's gonna do a better job or not. And that maybe, I'm sure the opposition said that. I'm not sure it's fair what they said. No, yeah, of course, uh, the opposition is interested in winning the election. Merkel is no longer a candidate in the next election for chancellor. So we, we're going to see some changes in, in Germany. I personally have a lot of respect for Merkel. I, I think she, under the circumstances, she's done a tremendous job, but um, everyone has a right of their own opinion and we see where this sure. goes. Yeah. As I'm not a German, it's not for me to say. I just am reporting the facts, not, not my opinion. Um, but I do think that what we're going to see is the tourism industry is really at a, a precipice. And we're going to have to make, uh, as a tourism industry, some real decisions and some real changes. Some of them have been done already. I think the hotel industry has done a really good job of cleaning and of um, making sure that their rooms are sanitized. But we now have to move from survival to profitability. And that's gonna be the key. If we can figure out ways in the tourism industry to give people confidence, make them feel good, 
and uh, still be able to um, travel and still earn a profit, that'll be very good. Now, I was at a, a restaurant tonight with some friends and my wife, and um, I uh, thought the restaurant did a really good job at keeping people safe, separating us, everyone was masked, and uh, you felt confident that you, that you there was good to go there. So I think the restaurant industry has made some real progress. We have other parts of the tourism industry that are still lacking. Right, and I have to really say here in Hawaii, that's almost business like, like usual. I mean, restaurants have been observing the six feet distancing and uh, very, and everyone respects it. So uh, that's why maybe why we're in, in good shape because uh, yeah. people here are, I think, sometimes a lot more disciplined and it's also, maybe it's a cultural thing uh, here in the Pacific yeah. compared to uh, some other be. regions, yeah. One last thing maybe we should just mention, I know there's gonna be a really big article about it in eTurbo News and I'm gonna be looking forward to reading it. But um, today, something that has nothing to do with COVID. As a matter of fact, it's 10,000 years old, the article. The Israeli Antiquities Society announced um, that they found not only a basket in the uh, Negev Desert, the Judean Desert, which is over 10,000 years old, but they found a child who was mummified naturally that was 6,000 years old, and a number of scraps of some of the biblical books um, in Greek translation from the Hebrew. There are some Hebrew words in it, but it, it appears that it was during the Bar Kokhba Revolution, which was about 2,000 years ago. And this will be fascinating because this is, again, real hard archaeological evidence of um, the whole biblical period. And it wasn't just a story. These are, we're seeing more and more archaeology is proving so much of what the Bible says. So uh, I know they're going to be putting this into, an, just like you have the uh, Shrine of the Book, Hechal HaSefer, in um, the Israel Museum, there's going to be a whole new part for all these wonderful new discoveries that are really turning the world of archaeology and biblical history on its head and really helping. And of course, this is so important, not only to Jews, but to anybody of the Aramaic um, traditions, be they Muslim or be they Christian, we're all connected through the biblical text. So right. I know you're going to be writing a, a really fascinating article about this, but this is kind of like just a, 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 a an appetizer to get people ready to read the article in Eve Turbo News. No, absolutely. Well, we're going to go uh, back to Hawaii. We're going to talk about, um, actually, we're going to witness a press conference in regards to equal access, I think, to the vaccine, what has been a, a big discussion point anywhere in the country. And let's see how it's done in Hawaii. Okay, well, that's great. And I wish you well. By the way, tomorrow, is supposed to rain here in Texas. So I'll let you know if we got our rain or not. All right. Okay. All right. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, immediate availability uh, to discuss health equity, our uh, brand new health equity report and vaccine ethnicity data. Some of you have been very patient uh, in waiting for that data. You've been asking for it for several week weeks now and we appreciate your talk to you. Uh, today to address where we are and um, what we've learned from our data and where we go from here. Uh, looks like 
we have um, lots and lots of people in, which is fabulous. Uh, just looking for someone from the Star Advertiser. I'm thinking they put someone in here. It would be a shame if they missed it, but I do see television stations, neighbor island news organizations, tele, uh, the civil beat. Um, so without further, well, let me send one text and then we'll kick things off. Appreciate it. Okay, folks, um, let's kick things off. I don't want to keep you guys waiting anymore. You're all on time, and thank you very much for doing that. You, wait, you have waited long enough and very patiently for this information. So again, we're going to be discussing uh, the, the health equity report and vaccine, uh, vaccine uh, ethnicity data. Um, we have presenters today that are going to highlight what you're going to see in these reports and, and talk about the data um, on race and ethnicity as far as vaccinations go. Um, the uh, ethnicity data uh, will be published daily, uh, Monday through Friday at 12 noon. And so uh, we're going to give you a sneak preview uh, during this media availability. You'll get a chance to look at that data and it will be uh, public facing uh, in less than an hour. Um, we will also be publishing the entire um, uh, health equity report at 12 noon today. We've got a lot of speakers for you, some from the, the Department of Health. We've got the head of the Disease Outbreak and Control Division. We have the lead investigator of our Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander contact tracing team. Uh, also here to assist you today is the gentleman who heads the COVID outreach and public education effort for the Department of Health. We have a public health expert from the University of Hawaii who co-authored the uh, health equity report. We have the executive director of Papahola Lokahi, which is a group focused on improving health and well-being for Native Hawaiians, the CEO of the Waimanalo Health Center, uh, which is such an important resource to people in that community. So a, a lot of people here to share perspectives on uh, you know, where we've been and where we're going uh, as far as uh, health equity uh, for COVID and the vaccine data. Um, I hope that you have all now had a chance to uh, at least open that press release and maybe not digest it, uh, but uh, let's go ahead and open things up. We're, we're going to do a Q&A after everyone has an opportunity to share some initial thoughts. We'll do a Q&A afterward and hopefully can wrap this up within the hour. Um, first up, batting leadoff for us here today uh, is none other than our acting state epidemiologist. She heads the uh, outbreak and um, the disease outbreak control, control division here for the Department of Health, and that is Dr. Sarah Kemble. Uh, Dr. Kemble, I know you're with us somewhere. Thank you, Brooks. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Throughout the pandemic, the Department of Health has been committed to health equity for all Hawaii communities. While we still have work to do, I'd like to share new data and initiatives that will help us address the disparities in vaccination administration and the spread of COVID-19. COVID-19 racial and ethnic inequities are linked to longstanding health inequities in cultural communities, including for Native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders, and Filipinos. Department of Health and our community partners have been working to conduct focused research, um, outreach, and data collection. The preliminary data that we are releasing on vaccination rates categorized by race follows this trend. Before vaccines were available, Department of Health collected data that has indicated that Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders 
have relatively high hesitancy towards getting vaccinated. Three months into our vaccination campaign, when we look at the state population as a whole, it lays out the work ahead of us in achieving equity. Out of total Hawaii residents categorized by race, the following have received at least one dose. 25.4% of Asians, 19.2% of Caucasians, 8.8% of Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, 6.4% of African-Americans, and 1.9% who identify as other. Due to the phase 1A and 1B age and employment-based distribution, a smaller number of Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders were eligible for vaccination. As we expand vaccination, more Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders will become eligible to be vaccinated. I know some of you have requested vaccination data by race and ethnicity and have been awaiting the release of this information. We wanted to be sure we could establish a format that's clear and that can be regularly updated and sustained. And we also wanted to provide a thorough explanation of the data and give you the opportunity to ask questions. We want to emphasize that this data is a starting point and is currently constrained by what we can derive from the National Vaccine Administration System or VAMS. The national system does not disaggregate Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities at this time. We want to do this and we'll be working to develop a more detailed breakdown to add to this preliminary data. In the next several weeks, you can expect more data to be available in different forms on the website as our data team continues to improve upon and expand the data we share on our data dashboard. This preliminary data is being posted online and will be updated daily on weekdays. Other considerations that are not re represented here are income level, education level, access to care, and geographic considerations. All of these things come into play when addressing vaccination disparities. In addition, cultural and ethnic values, vaccine acceptance and mobility are all issues that may contribute to the disparities. DOH is also releasing a comprehensive report on health equity in diverse populations that details the racial and ethnic disparities in COVID-19 in Hawaii, documents the actions taken to reduce transmission across the state, and provides recommendations based on lessons learned from the COVID-19 response. Two of the report's co-authors will join us shortly to discuss their findings. The data that we are reporting today serves as a benchmark and we will report progress as it is available. Thanks to the work of my DOH colleagues and community partners, we have concrete recommendations and goals to inform our work. We're committed to doing more and doing better. Many community groups have already come together to address these disparities and are doing incredible work to bridge the gap. And we will hear about these efforts today. I thank you for your work to ensure that equity remains a key focus of Hawaii's COVID-19 response. Thank you. And thank you very much, Dr. Sarah Kemble. Um, next speaker this morning is going to be Chantal Matangi. She is the lead investigator for the Department of Health's Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander contact tracing team. And if I do say so myself, she has perhaps the best background we're going to see all day. Uh, Chantal, take it away. 
Thank you so much. Uh, good afternoon, talafalava, aloha to all of you. Um, as he stated, my name is Chantal Esata Matangi. I am the lead investigator for the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander contact tracing team. Um, I'm going to be talking about how we came together and who contributed to our equity report. So efforts to mitigate the impact of COVID of the COVID-19 pandemic in Hawaii were complemented by grassroots initiatives from within the Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and Filipino communities themselves. As the threat of COVID-19 to local communities emerged, organizations and individuals came together to respond and promote resilience. Recognizing the importance of these important efforts and independent efforts, Hawaii Department of Health invited leaders from within these communities to contribute their perspectives and highlight the innovative and resourceful activities that arose amid this unprecedented pandemic. In May 2020, the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander COVID-19 Response Recovery and Resilience Team, or the 3R team, was formed to improve the collection and reporting of data, identify and lend support to initiatives across the Hawaiian Islands, working to address COVID-19 among Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, and to establish a unified presence in the decision-making processes and policies that impact our communities. Convened by Papa Ololokahi and comprised of over 50 organizations serving Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, the 3R team, which is further divided into Native Hawaiian subcommittee and a Pacific Islander subcommittee, has advocated for change in data disaggregation and how racial and ethnic specific data are collected and reported. Initially, there were no public or private organizations that um, organized COVID-19 19 efforts in the Filipino community, despite high numbers of cases. However, in September 2020, the Filipino Underrepresented Scholars Organization, or PUSO, convened and discussed ways to organize and mobilize the Filipino community in response to the pandemic. Members of PUSO, including Dr. May Rose de la Cruz, um, Dr. Agnes Malatele, Malete, I'm so sorry, I apologize for that. And Filipino advocates and retired University of Hawaii um, Manoa professors assembled a Filipino COVID-19 response team consisting of over 25 Filipino advocates, leaders, medical staff, and community members. This work group has met weekly since October, 2020 to discuss, support, and promote COVID-19 resources among the Filipino community in Hawaii. In October 2020, the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander Priority Investigation and Outreach Team, which also includes Filipino speaking team members, is a unique solution created by the Hawaii Department of Health. And the team itself is constructed of individuals with novel approaches and that integrate Western science with cultural practices and values to produce innovative approaches that are realistic and respectful to the many diverse Pacific communities in Hawaii. These initiatives leveraged regional history, cultural values, uh, practices, and implemented strategies that applied to very specific communities. So rather than placing the burden of the pandemic response on these communities most effective, these initiatives or these innovative approaches empowered them. 
by supporting their grassroots efforts to create their own narratives and shape their community-specific solutions while following public health guidelines. While implementing the COVID-19 awareness campaign and educational efforts, it was essential for my team to ensure that the messaging was light and friendly. So we look to avoid common guilt or fear-based tactics when motivating a community to adhere to health guidelines or to change behaviors. We also understood that when we were asking them to change these behaviors, that we were asking them only to do it for a small amount of time and in conjunction with them. So we didn't look to tell them what to do, but rather we look to find ways to incorporate their cultural practices, but to make them COVID appropriate in order to protect these communities. Um, these efforts are seen as a great step forward. They are unique um, and program specific to Hawaii. And we are actually receiving national recognition from the CDC for this. And of course, our hope is that in moving forward, Hawaii will continue to support these collaborative relationships and incorporate this into other departments statewide. I appreciate your time today and I'll turn the rest of my time over to May Rose or back to Brooks rather. Thank you very much, uh, do appreciate it. I believe next uh, on the hit parade is, uh, is going to be uh, May Rose Dela Cruz uh, is uh, a, an expert with the University of Hawaii in uh, Native Hawaiian and Indigenous People's Health. And she is also a co-author of uh, the equity report that you're all gonna see today. So take it away. Thank you. Aloha and thank you, um, Salamat. Thanks, Kelly, for going over the report. I'll be going over the, um, the responses and the recommendations right now. Um, an important part of this report was to highlight the responses. There were two types of responses. First is the public health response, and that was conducted by the Department of Health using the contact tracing program and also utilizing um, different materials translated for the ethnic groups represented in Hawaii. But a valuable and a much needed response was the community response, which was, I was completely a part of with the Filipino community and I'm, I'm very proud of, of working with our Filipino community through the Philcoms Cares project. The Philcoms Cares project was with the Filipino Community Center along with the legal clinic and currently now with the Hawaii Public Health Institute and the Philippon Cares Project, where we looked at different venues that was appropriate for the Filipinos here in Hawaii. And one of them was the Radiothon, which we conducted in November. And we um, talked about COVID-19 in our native languages of Ilocano and Tagalog. Along with the Radiothon, we also made culturally relevant and tailored materials in Ilocano and Tagalog in partnership with Department of Health. And we also did COVID testing at Catholic churches. 90% of Catholics here in Hawaii are Filipino. I also wanted to highlight another great community and outstanding community response was the We Are Oceana project or program with um, the American Asian populations. They helped come together and made a helpline in their native languages and had many, many outreach activities regarding COVID testing and also supporting their communities with food drives and uh, making appropriate materials. 
um, this is really important for to have community response because it is the community who will provide insight on what the community needs. Um, we also had six recommendations in the equity report. Um, I would like to only highlight two. Um, the first recommendation was to advocate for standardized, complete, and accurate data. This is important to be consistent with ethnic categories and to continue to disaggregate data. Through disaggregation of data, we can see through the cases and mortality rates which ethnic groups need the help. Um, and we're hoping to continue disaggregation of data with the vaccination clinics, who's getting vaccinated, who isn't, and also who are, which populations are getting services. The second recommendations, um, second recommendation is to collaborate with community orgs and develop target informed messaging, which we saw in the community response. Um, only the communities understand which venue, which mechanism is best to deliver the messages. And we did it through print, TV, radio, or even TikTok. Um, and we also translated materials. The remaining four recommendations are basically circulating around community involvement regarding how to speak on the data, um, share the data, how to up, um, organize and to help uh, minority populations be part of the whole um, dissemination of data, integrating into policies. Um, but thank you so much for letting me speak on this. It was a great um, collaborative effort and hopefully we'll have more community involvement in future reports and future data dissemination. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dela Cruz. Very much appreciate it. Um, next up for us is Christopher Johnson. Chris Johnson, uh, known affectionately to us as CJ. Uh, he heads the COVID outreach and public education program here for the Department of Health. And there is a familiar face to us all. He's been doing wonderful work for uh, since long before I joined the Department of Health, getting out into the community, um, networking, establishing partnerships, and building trust. And, and CJ, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Brooks. Uh, yeah, so I'm CJ Johnson. Um, when we're not in a pandemic, my role at DOH focuses on chronic disease prevention and health promotion, uh, where we work specifically on diabetes, heart disease, other conditions that are impacted by what we call social determinants of health. And what that means is that we focus strongly on how factors like occupation, socioeconomic status, and our living environments either support or create barriers to health. And what we know from this work is that owing to generations of unequal access to supportive environments, healthcare, and health information, racial disparities in many chronic diseases are persistent and compounding. So that's relevant today, that's critical even today in today's conversation, because as we've seen at every scale from national to local, these same risk factors, both the social determinants and the chronic diseases themselves are the, also the driving forces between, uh, behind rather, our racial disparities in COVID cases and outcomes. They also play an important role in understanding the disparities in vaccine rates, and they help us strategize how to address them. So there's at least two different issues, which Dr. Kemble mentioned earlier, that contribute to vaccine rate disparities, and they break down roughly to access and interest. Um, from even before vaccines arrived in December, we anticipated them and have been cultivating and formalizing a large network of community partners, many of whom you've already heard about, uh, to address these challenges. So various varying levels of enthusiasm for vaccination among different racial groups is, is expected. We, we've known, we've had surveying that's, that supports that. 
Um, these are informed by personal cultural history with healthcare systems, but through partnerships with a number of organizations, we've been able to develop information campaigns that are more responsive to community concerns and values and that empower communities to make informed decisions about vaccination. So over the past year, we have, as Telly mentioned, stood up an NHPI contact tracing team with language skills, local cultural knowledge that provides extensive outreach uh, not just in, in contact tracing, but in prevention, management, and in vaccination. We've worked with community partners to develop a really robust library of COVID-19 and vaccine guidance in over 16 languages, which is available uh, at hawaiicovid19.com. We've developed a series of testimonial videos featuring cultural and health leaders in the NHPI and Filipino communities. And we've de dedicated funding uh, specifically dedicated funding to a number of organizations on the ground reaching out to these populations. And I want to say these critical partners who uh, are already in the field, already making a difference that we've been able to formalize relationships with, like Papa Ololokahi, who you'll hear from in a minute, Marshallese Community Organization of Hawaii, Philcom Center, Project Vision, We Are Oceania, the Hawaii Public Health Institute. So by partnering with these groups, we have increased our educational reach. We've identified key influencers like religious and business leaders, and we've prioritized the most relevant messages and channels to maximize that impact. So the other part of the process, which I mentioned is access, where language, technology, and mobility are known concerns. And some highlights of the existing access work include funding a series of UH courses intended to upskill bilingual community health workers or CHWs to share COVID-19 vaccine information, piloting an outbound in-language phone bank system to identify and support Kapuna who are not online and may have language or mobility barriers to getting vaccinated, supporting targeted vaccination events. So, so far we've supported Chukis and Filipino vaccination events on Oahu and a number of other language specific drives are in the works across the state. And today actually uh, is the first in a series of on-site max vaccinations at Hawaii public housing facilities that are senior facilities that we've helped coordinate print and on-site language support for those events. So again, the equity data on the dashboard and in the report is not a surprise to those of us who've been doing this work, but they are compelling evidence that the existing effort is justified, that much more needs to be done, and that even as we struggle with these inequities, strengthening the partnerships that shape this report and so much of this outreach work is an opportunity to shape a more inclusive and equitable future through empowered partnerships and targeting resources where they're most needed. So with that, I would like to hand the spotlight over to Dr. Sherry Daniels, Executive Director of Papa Ololokahi, to talk more about the critical role that they have played in COVID-19 response, recovery, and resilience. Sherry? Mahalo, CJ, for, for bringing me into the loop. Um, so, you know, I want to thank um, Telly for kind of giving an overview of the 3R team um, that Papolo Kahi, along with others, have worked to uplift. And really what we looked at is the importance of this data report is really going to allow communities as well as policymakers the ability to support the ongoing efforts um, that we've seen over the last year. You know, one of the biggest challenges is how do we shift policy and how we move forward. And as you saw in the first slide that Dr. Kimball shared, shared for Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, 8.8% have been vaccinated. And that's one of the reasons the 3R team back in the fall really pushed the National Academy of Medicine to prioritize our population as one of those vaccination priority, priority groups. Um, and that did come out in their report. And so things like um, that low number was of, concern, was of concern for us. So in working with the Department of Health to make sure that in language messaging, 
and support was done really helped to upscale our work with the community. And we really saw ourselves as a bridger between the efforts that the Department of Health is doing and those in the community. One of the things I did wanna highlight is the Hawaii is the only state that further disaggregates the data for positive cases. So no other state in the US um, takes our NHPI numbers and further disaggregates it to see how NHS um, look comparatively to Pacific Islanders in terms of positive, rate, positive rates. And we're hoping that the same, um, the same scaling can be done for the vaccination data as well. So that, those inf that information really helps communities better message. It helps us to understand where we need to put our resources. The resources that we have been able to, to bring into our communities is to help them um, push forward vaccination rollouts in partnerships with FQHCs or the Department of Health or other providers such as Kaiser Permanente to really get vaccinations into communities. I, I believe that we talked briefly about hesitancy and I really want to kind of talk about that a little bit, that for our Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander communities, the perception of hesitancy is one that we want to shift and really talk about the concept of kilo. And that culturally, kilo is a time, is, is, a, is an activity of, of observation, that we're not jumping quickly to an action, that we're taking our time to really gather information, be thoughtful in our response, and really to look at how being vaccinated and making those choices has impact not only on ourselves, but on, but on our families and within our communities. So instead of you know, looking at it as hesitancy, then we're looking at it from a space of being in kilo, that we wanna look and we wanna observe before we move forward. We're hopeful that the changes that we're seeing and that all this information and, and, and the gathering of um, entities coming together, both at the state level, at community-based organizations, and, and even with those bridging organizations, that we can see policy, policy shifts moving forward, that we can change the way our system, um, the mechanisms behave so that we can truly support the efforts that are being done in community today. So with that, I'd like to pass it over to Dr. Mary Oneha from Waimanalo Health Center. Aloha, mahalo Sherry, thank you for that. Uh, to ensure that the nation's underserved communities and those disproportionately affected by COVID-19 are equitably uh, vaccinated against COVID-19, the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, launched a program to directly allocate COVID-19 vaccines to HRSA-supported health centers. So in their first phase, 250 health centers were invited to participate. In the second phase, an additional 700 health centers have been invited to participate. 12 out of 15 health centers in Hawaii were invited to participate recently. The health centers that have been invited to this program serve a large volume of one of the following, uh, individuals experiencing homelessness, public housing residents, uh, patients with limited English proficiency, those who have low income and minority patients, and those programs that utilize mobile vans to deliver uh, services. The allocation provided for this program is separate from the jurisdiction's weekly allocations or those allocations that we currently receive from the Department of Health. There are several steps community health centers need to complete before ordering vaccines through this program. 
Health centers follow state priority guidelines in administering the vaccine to their patients and are allowed the flexibility to administer beyond those guidelines to our disproportionately affected communities and those populations with health and socioeconomic vulnerabilities. So we appreciate the support from the Department of Health and our Primary Care Association and are excited to accept the invitation and support from the federal government. We highly encourage vaccinations for all those eligible and will continue to reach out to our patients to schedule their COVID vaccine appointment and continue to think of ways to expand, particularly since all three vaccines will be available to us to our underserved communities and those disproportionately affected. Mahalo. All righty, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, reporters, I know that uh, that is a whole lot of information to digest and, and you have yet to, to see this uh, full report and have time to, to read that and digest it. You just got a very quick look at some of the numbers so we can get those up again on the screen for you. Uh, during Q&A if you would like, but it is now time for question and answers. I know there are a lot of questions out there. And so um, let's do it this way if we can. It has been suggested that we ask people to raise their hands, but everyone has been so good in the past. Um, you, you guys have all played so well in the sandbox with one another, giving each other time to ask questions and even a follow-up question uh, when needed. So um, let's, hopefully we can just have a free flowing conversation, uh, but if it gets a little out of hand, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to the raising of the hand. Uh, I do see that hands are already up. Uh, let's go uh, to Daryl Huff and then Kristen Concilio. Uh, we can get a question for you, the Star Advertiser. But uh, Daryl Huff, what can we So uh, where's the data on Filipinos? How do we find it? It's not on your slide. I can take that if, uh, Brooks, are you gonna put up the... Um... Katie, you're going to put up the numbers again. So the vaccine data is currently limited by the categories available in the Vaccine Administration Management System, which is a federal data system for collecting vaccine administration data. And these are the categories that are collected federally. So as some of our speakers referenced, um, the work that went into the health equity report was based on disaggregated data that we do collect for cases here uh, through our data systems in Hawaii. Uh, we are working to uh, with the federal system to try to get disaggregated categories for Asian and NHPI here so that we can do the same with vaccine data. So doctor, what, what can you tell us about what's happening in the Filipino community then? I mean, you guys showed quite a lot of interest in it. You have a lot of people working that community. I understand that um, there is a lot of hesitancy and that it's kind of dissembled where the various people are getting their shots. How is the Filipino community doing uh, in your estimation? Right, that's where that disaggregated data is um, key and why we are working hard to get it disaggregated. We don't have great visibility through the federal um, data on those groups within the Asian category or the Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander aggregate category. Is it okay if I add, address that question, um, Daryl? Thank you, Daryl, for that question. So being out in the community, and we've noticed this with our community, we've been meeting almost every week with the Filipino organizations, and we've noticed the issue isn't vaccine hesitancy with our group, it's vaccine access. 
So uh, that's why we're, we've been going out, doing more outreach activities and um, working with the Filipino Catholic clubs to make sure that our elderly are going to the um, to get vaccinated at the Catholic churches. There's a great mistrust sometimes with the medical community. So if the church promotes it and our first vac vaccinated Filipino um, loca location was the bishop. The bi he's not really Filipino, but he was vaccinated and he wanted to show that um, he endorses vaccination. So if there's more access to the vaccine, more Filipinos are willing to get it, especially since many of us are frontline and essential workers. Um, but we are hopeful that much of that Asian data gets split and we would like to see if our Filipinos are getting vaccinated because we are providing a lot of um, places where they can. Thank you. I think you just answered my question about where it is. So it's they are within the Asian category then? That's where they usually put us, yes. And if we can, let's go to Kristen Concilio. Kristen. So, sorry, I think I heard that it, the issue is not so much hesitancy, but maybe waiting and watching for Native Hawaiians. And then did you say access for Filipino community? Is that what you just said? Sorry. Yes, thank you. So, so it's, oh, go ahead. So for regarding Filipinos, it's hard. Like I, I think a lot of us, there's language barriers with our elderly populations. The registration process is very cumbersome and the health literacy level is really high there. So what we've been doing with the Catholic churches is we do registration um, a week before the vaccination clinic at the church. And then we do the, the vaccination um, a week later. So we're up there in person helping them getting registered because a lot of times you don't have internet access for them or they don't have, um, they don't understand the whole process. So just being there out in the community and helping them understand the registration process and know when to get it. And then they will stand in line. They will wait for their turn and they would like to get vaccinated. So what kind of policy policies need to be changed in order to you know, help with this issue? You know, it's been great that the Department of Health and the state's been helpful with a lot of um, giving us access to and giving access to vaccines. But I think a lot of the push really needs to be a pattern and a habit of doing that in any case regarding public health to push it on the communities, uh, you know, the pod started off at Kaka'ako. Our elderly don't have access to that. They're, they're not seen at Kaka'ako. Sometimes it's not within the bus line. There's no transportation for them. So it's, I think it's best to push it out, push it out in the communities, the Catholic churches, that's where we're at for Filipinos. So I think that's the case for many of our vulnerable and minority populations, bring it to the rural communities and let, and help us get it out to our people. Um, for Native Hawaiians, I just want to chime in, similar to what Rosemary, uh, what May Rose had said, that for our community, it's it's not that we're not wanting it; is we want to be, we want to understand, we want our questions answered, we want to see what happens. Um, you know, messages can be very confusing. Um, the platform is confusing for many in our community, and we're finding that they often need. Um, some additional help multiple in many of our communities right it's not just 
um, giving them the link. It's how do we help them register? How do we help get them to those sites in their community? So it's really looking at community partners so that the access is closer to their homes. It's also helping them fill out the forms there, but also checking in with them so they know that they have a second dose that they have to come back for. And what does that mean in their community? So it's helping communities really band together in a way that they already do, but to support those efforts with funding, to help support pay for community health workers that are helping register, helping check in, making sure when we have events that there's opportunities that messaging can be put out to them as well so that they can share more word of mouth with their community members as well. So it's really uh, taking a multi-pronged approach, but also making sure we have information that are not only linguistically correct, but also visually correct. Um, the Papololokahi, along with our 3R team, will be releasing a vaccination toolkit. And that is in partnership with um, some Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander organizations um, across the nation that we wanted to make sure when we look at creating a toolkit for our community, that it was not only in in language, but it was also visually appealing so that we can help them. But it's also helping our communities have access for funding, for support, so that they can do their best as well. And I am so sorry, I'm gonna add one more thing to this, my apologies. Um, I think that it's also important, especially as we're doing educational outreach, something that's been coming back over and over again is making sure that we have Department of Health workers who speak their language and understand their culture and who are able to communicate it in a way that they understand. Um, recently, I was a part of a discussion where um, one of the community members had stated, I received a call from a contact tracer and they used an interpreter. And while I appreciate the fact that the effort was being made, the next call I received was from an actual contact tracer who had been trained and who spoke the language. And so as we had this discussion, because the person on the other side of the line understood the process, they were able to further tease out what needed to be done, what needed to be offered, and had a richer, fuller conversation that was not only in language, but also made sure that they there was comprehension that they understood what was going on, which is again, what we're also hearing from the community concerning vaccination, which is why part of our outreach also includes vaccination. And we partner up with CJ to make sure that we're presenting it. It's factual, it's whatever the Department of Health has said is putting out, it's up to date, but also it's in language and culturally appropriate. So I think that's important to note and amazing job by the Department of Health. Thank you, Kelly, we appreciate that. Um, I see Nicole Tan has a question, but she has indicated to me she has a question that is a little off topic. Um, and so if I may, uh, let's, let's go to uh, Jurgen Steinmetz next, uh, who has his hand up. Uh, yes, my, my question maybe is also a little bit not off topic, but um, I'm wondering, uh, the visitors industry has uh, some of our uh, guests that are staying long-term and actually were encouraged to come here and work uh, away from home so they can fulfill the quarantine uh, requirements. Uh, they're both domestic visitors and also international visitors um, in Hawaii. Do they have access to our vaccine program? So the vaccine program in Hawaii is um, focused on people residing here in the state. 
and people are um, asked to provide proof of residency when they go to get vaccinated. Thank you. All right, and uh, Nicole has indicated to me that she does have an on-topic question. So uh, Nicole Tam at KITV will take that and then we'll try to circle around if we have time at the end to your off-topic question. But Nicole, uh, something uh, related to uh, today's topic. Yes, thanks Brooks and everyone. Um, so many speakers spoke about like community group involvements to get people vaccinated. What's an in initiative that works besides educational outreach? Is it just ramping up efforts to get shots out to communities, like to churches, like you mentioned, or more educational discussions are needed to specific communities in their language, perhaps? But pretty much, what are initiatives that works to really get people to want to get the vaccine? I'll take that, I guess. Uh, I think there's, so, so as I mentioned in my presentation, I think there's there's kind of two separate concerns, right? So one of them is that is the education or, or the, the interest. I, I agree that I don't like the term hesitancy. I think it's very reasonable to have questions and want your questions answered in a way that's that's resonant with you. So interest and access. So there, we, we are not, um, we're dealing with both of those at the same time. And I guess in di different people and different populations and different communities are in different ages, certainly are at different stages in, in that process. And so at the same time that we are reaching out and trying to make sure that we have answers. So the, the one-on-one questions I mentioned on Hawaii, covid19.com, uh, we do have our FAQs that are things like, how does mRNA work? Or what are the side effects of the vaccine? Or what do I need to bring with me to my appointment? Things like that, that are just things that help people feel more comfortable. Uh, we have some, like I said, testimonials from uh, influential leaders that again are intended to help people become more comfortable and normalize being vaccinated. So that's part of it. And then the other part is there are, you know, we've talked about a lot of them. There are language, there are technology, they're geographic, there's mobility barriers. And these are all very um, complicated and they intersect quite a bit in terms of the populations that are most vulnerable. So uh, there's a lot of communication work. There's a lot of outreach work that is being done. We, we have uh, funded a number of these organizations that, that were already doing community work, right? They were already out and working before there was vaccines. They were getting masks to people. They were translating their own material to their communities to make sure people understood hygiene and precaution. So what we've been able to do is fortify those relationships, provide guidance and listen Right? It's not a broadcast, it's not a one-way relationship. We're listening to the community partners and hearing what concerns are, and then trying to figure out how we can transfer from these pods. Like the pods were designed specifically to get lots and lots of people in and out. And when we had a limited supply and when we were early in the process, it was really important to move a lot of numbers, right? That herd immunity is the finish line. But we also saw from this vax data that, that, that the consequence of that is that we don't have uh, an as equitable distribution as we'd like. So we're working with those same partners we've been developing relationships with for, for years and really focusing for the last year to find, to identify the specific individuals, the specific neighbors, the, the auntie that's not online, the auntie that has that can't leave the house, the you know the the neighbor who doesn't speak English, and and helping people, and, and we are trying to get them the resources and fund work that is doing that that really labor intensive, really time intensive outreach to make sure that we're not leaving those folks behind. So I think it's it's two separate but related challenges, and they're you know as I think I've been given my my 101 thing on webinars and stuff for two or three months, and you. Feel like gosh doesn't everybody know it by now but the reality is a lot of folks still haven't heard it or a lot of folks still haven't made up their mind so we're continuing to do that part the education and also really trying to think how what think through the barriers and how we can address them 
And I just wanted to add that the other side of this is um, making sure that vaccines are going to providers who uh, these communities are most familiar with and comfortable with to begin with. That's been a large part of the emphasis on federally qualified health centers. Uh, we're very grateful for the federal program that's allowing, allow, allowing us to even further expand vaccination through federally qualified health centers. But from the beginning, one of our top priorities has been to make sure that uh, doses, all the doses that can be absorbed through the federally qualified health centers and other um, providers that are serving those communities are met. Um, so, so that remains the goal for ongoing vaccination to make sure that resource is fully utilized. I don't know if there's any additional comments that um, Dr. Oneha would like to make on the FQHC perspective. No, I agree with what you just stated, Dr. Campbell, and what uh, CJ shared. I think it's a combination of factors. I don't think there's an ideal set of circumstances in each community. I think it's different in each community, but definitely education and access are key components uh, to people getting uh, vaccinated. And access not only includes uh, community access, cultural access, but having transportation available, calling them on the phone as opposed to having them go through the internet to schedule their own appointment, providing assistance with the pre-vaccination checklist, scheduling their second appointment at the time of their first appointment. It's just a number of supports that are needed uh, to be in place to assist the populations that we are serving. All right, thank you all for that. Uh, Anita uh, has asked uh, questions uh, for quite some time uh, about this topic, and I'd like to give her an opportunity to ask a few questions that she's got on deck. Anita. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you all, um, everybody at DOH. I know you guys have been fielding my questions for several weeks now, so I really appreciate um, you know, this press conference today. And um, so the first question I had was a follow-up to what Daryl was asking um, about more specific data. Um, I, I understand that the VAM system has broad race categorizations. Um, my question is how specifically are you going to be get able to get that more specific data, you know, because people are getting vaccinated right now and they're sending me like screenshots of their um, vaccination questions that are only those broad race data. How are you going to know like how many Filipinos have been vaccinated? Do you have to kind of like call everybody back the way that it worked for the COVID-19 cases? Or is there um, is there additional way that providers are, are obtaining that information currently? And also what is the timeline for getting that that more specific um, breakdown? I, I understand it's it's complicated, um, but what is like the what you know? What what should we expect in terms of when we can when see those uh, breakdowns specifically for um, disaggregated data for Native Hawaiians, other Pacific Islanders, and Filipinos? Thanks for that question. The answer is some of both or some of each. Um, we uh, have been asking sites uh, where feasible to use a paper-based form. In the meantime, that also collects more specific race categories. So for those sites that have been able to do that. Um, we are collecting back those forms, and that is that process of trying to go back and backfill some of that information. Um, other sites, including many of our health system sites, may be able to collect the specific race information through their medical record systems. So as we uh, are, we're still in the process of getting our immunization information system, the Hawaii Immunization Registry, back up and running fully. 
so as those providers onboard, we can uh, extract data on race for those vaccinations that already occurred to some degree through that method. Um, finally, we have asked the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention um, from the beginning when we began using VAMS to add specific race categories and disaggregate the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander category as well as the Asian race categories. Uh, we did get word recently that they um, have heard our request and are working on uh, disaggregating those fields in VAMS as well. So we're happy to hear that. Um, if I have a timeline from them, I will share it with you. So at this point, we don't, there is no specific timeline for this or, or it's unclear? I think realistically, um, we're more likely to get this kind of information going forward prospectively. Um, we do hope to at least uh, complete enough of a retrospective review of the, um, the, the various other methods we can capture what's already happened to get a snapshot. But I think most likely we'll have more robust data moving forward. Uh, that would be, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have uh, some of these solutions come through um, within the, the next few weeks. But again, we are somewhat dependent on uh, the federal systems to make those changes and we're working on that. I was also wondering in terms of the, um, uh, you know, the 8.8% vaccination rate for the NHPI community. Um, I, I was wondering like how you feel about that. Like when I look at that and I see 8.8% vaccination rate and 40, 41% of cases are affecting that community. Uh, like what would you like the public to take away from the differences in those numbers? Like what is the, what is your reaction to that? The first reaction, as CJ was saying, is those numbers are not unexpected for those of us who have been working on these issues. And there's a couple of reasons. Um, it doesn't mean that they are acceptable, but it, it is not um, unexpected. And one reason is looking at how uh, we have allocated vaccine based on the recommendations from the federal government and the um, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. The very first prioritization group was healthcare workers. Well, as we look at um, who are healthcare workers in our state, uh, we see underrepresentation of Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander groups in that category. So um, obviously if we're prioritizing vaccinations for a group that doesn't represent NHPI very well, then we're gonna see lower vaccination rates for that group. We then moved on to those 75 and older. Well, if we look at our demographics in the state, um, Unfortunately, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders don't have as long a life expectancy in the state. So we have fewer people in that category. One of the things you'll be able to see on the new dashboard is both the percentage of the total population vaccinated to date, as well as the percentage within target age groups or, or um, so the, the 70 plus age group. And so when you look at it by age, uh, the disproportionate representation is not as, um, apparent. So looking at those who are in the older age category, the proportion of NHPI vaccinated is much more on par with the other age groups. It's when we look uh, below that age range that we see more of the disparity. And that's where we really need to focus this effort, as everyone's been saying, on the interest and access, reaching out to communities, going to where they are to make sure that they are able to get vaccinated, um, understand the benefits, and um, can get their shots. When I talk to advocates for the NHPI um, community, you know, they say that one way to improve access is to make their community a 
clear priority um, or to um, prioritize certain zip codes that have been hit hard, like in Kalihi, or to prioritize um, zip codes with overcrowding. I'm, I'm just wondering, like, looking at the disparity as you see it now, do you have any, like, desire to change the prioritization or would, would that have been helpful in retrospect? Um, or is this, um, you know, do you still think that the prioritization categories um, were the way to go? I think there were good reasons to start with healthcare workers at the in the 1A category and that was agreed on nationally. I think now as we move into 1C, we have a real opportunity to tackle health equity head on. This is the group in which we really do need to make sure that we are reaching uh, those areas both geographically and demographically that um, that need the most outreach. And so I, I think that um, the numbers that we see here as baseline are what we would expect from who from how the prioritization was handled initially. And I don't think it's wrong. I mean, I think we have to make sure our health systems are able uh, to be resilient and to, um, to not be fearful that if we had additional COVID surge, that we wouldn't have the healthcare system capacity to deal with it. That affects everyone, no matter your race, your age, uh, your culture. But as now that we've, we've done that piece, we've um, vaccinated most of our healthcare workers, it is really looking into the community now, where are we seeing the highest risk? Are we reaching those populations? And that's really the work ahead of us here in phase 1C. Yeah, I just wanted to add that the federal program does prioritize the public housing um, residents for the program and both health centers in Kalihi, Kuku Kalihi Valley and Kalihi Palama Health Centers have been invited to participate in the federal program. All right, and time is getting short. I still see some hands up. If you don't have a question, you can take your hand down. That would help me. Um, we, we, of course, want to answer as many of these things as we can, but as you know, we have lots of work to do here. We have not had a chance to go to Hawaii Public Radio. So Jason, do you have a question for uh, members of our panel? And if so, who? And what's the question? Let's see. All right, can you hear me? Okay. Um, I don't have a question specifically for anyone, but for the department. Um, so I know you're collecting the data, trying to disaggregate it. Um, but I, I've also heard that you're not surprised by some of it. And maybe even with the vaccine roller, not surprised. It's kind of overlaying chronic conditions, the COVID testing and who's getting it. Uh, so how do we know that, um, why collect it? And how do you know you're making a difference with your back with the outreach and rollout? And how do you communicate that to us that, you know, collecting this data and acting on it, that it's making a difference and, uh, you know, the people who need to get vaccinated get vaccinated. Right, I think that uh, by continuing to show the data and how it how the needle moves day to day, week to week is how we can now uh, hold ourselves accountable for our vaccination efforts and whether we're making dents where we need to. Uh, so that that data is the where we flow from. It is the beginning of that process to see um, are the activities that we have implemented, the actions we are taking, are they working? Um, like I said, I. I think that um, this is the appropriate time to really be tracking that because up till now, there have been some limitations to how vaccine 
uh, is prioritized that would not have impacted these groups as greatly. But now as we move forward, we should be able to see that needle move. And if we don't, or we see it lagging in one area or the other, this is how we can track that and change course as needed. This whole pandemic really has been about um, being ready to be adaptable and um, meet the challenges where we find them. And being able to see the challenges is the first step of that. I hope you don't mind if I add to that. Um, because I do a lot of <laughs> educational outreach and I'm dealing with Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islanders, and Filipino, Filipino community members, uh, the reports that I'm getting back from the community and also those community leaders is that I've, as we have added language and culture, they have seen that their numbers are going down. The community is isolating or, or quarantining properly, that they understand the steps that are needing, needed to be taken in order to flatten the curve. They're also receiving the resources that they need, which is instrumental. If you're suffering and you have to stay home and you don't have food or you don't have access to an ISO quarantine unit, then of course you're going to stay home. You're going to pass it on to everybody else. But if you have someone who speaks your language, who understands what's going on in your home, be it multicultural or whatever, multi-generational, they're able to come in and say, how many people are in your home? How can we best assist you in making sure that we can separate you? And how can we support you? And how can we get you in touch with these additional agencies to support you through this effort? So I know for me, my team came into existence in October, 2020. Our numbers for the NHPI community were high. They have come down, not as much as we would like it to, but they're continuing to come down. And as we continue to have this education and this outreach and to be there for them, our hope is that that will continue to happen and that we'll be able to put this also with, um, with the vaccine. And I see Josh's camera is on, so hopefully he can actually give you those numbers. So I'll turn it over to him. Yeah, I know we're short on time, but I just wanted to chime in to the role that we see data playing uh, on these issues. And so when it comes to the vaccination data, we are looking at trends over time. So today's posting will just be a first baseline, as Dr. Kimball mentioned, and then we will be providing ways to analyze the data so that we can track our progress towards the goals that have been mentioned and, and to be able to evaluate the effectiveness of all the outreach activities that are happening. Thank you. And I, I know we've already gone into overtime, Dr. Kemble, um, and, and any panelists that are still with us. I know people have already had a few people have already had to drop off. But um, if, do you have another minute for a couple min minutes for the last couple questions? I have a couple minutes. Yeah. Okay, just a couple minutes, Daryl. Can we go to you for one question, and then we'll, we'll go to Chris? Sure. I, you know, you have current priorities. One thing, if you wouldn't mind, I'll, just in two parts. First. Where the the um, communities in these uh, that are being served by the by the healthcare centers were they being prioritized in the same way as other people? That is stage one, stage one B, one C, and so on. And two, now that you've decided that you're going to prioritize hotel workers, bars, restaurant workers, and so on, is that in a way taking away from your ability to serve these communities? Or how are you balancing that at this stage? Because it really does seem the people that have the most infections. Are getting the least vaccines. I can speak to both of those. So for the healthcare centers, we, as um, as referenced earlier by Dr. Oneha, 
we have always allowed flexibility there for, for the health centers to vaccinate their populations more broadly. So we have not held them to the strict um, age and uh, occupation-based categorizations. And that is with the recognition of the need for health equity there to um, give a head start to those communities in terms of vaccination. Uh, as far as uh, the, the current prioritization for hotels, restaurant workers, and bars, um, in fact, when we have looked at our recent case and cluster data, um, our clusters have been dominated recently by uh, outbreaks occurring in those specific settings, uh, hotel workers, restaurant workers, bar workers. And we have also observed associations that many of the workers impacted there are from um, Pacific Islander communities in particular. Um, so that is part of that uh, prioritization there. So I actually am hopeful that by um, placing that as our next immediate prioritization, we will be able to move forward more rapidly on vaccinating those populations most impacted and most needing the vaccine. Thank you, Daryl. Uh, thank you, Dr. Campbell. Let's go to Kristen Concilio for one last question and then Nicole, Pam, and I think we'll have to wrap it up. Kristen. Okay, so I, I want to know how many vaccines have gone to the health centers and how many have been returned in terms of unused because of this issue. Yeah, we have had very few unused or returned vaccines um, in general. So I don't have exact numbers, but I can say there has not been a trend of unused or returned vaccine from the health centers. Can you just, can you just tell us how many have gone to the health centers in these communities? I would have to get that to you later. I don't have the distribution numbers current as of now. Thanks. Kristen, maybe you can follow up with me and I'll, I'll see if I can't help you with that. Um, and Nicole, Pam, you have a question. I believe you're gonna get the final word of the day. Thank you. This question is for Dr. Kemble. So Moderna is doing a vaccine trial for kids age six months to 12 years old. Uh, what are some risks for kids to get the vaccine? And is it too early? Do you think it's necessary for kids that young to get a shot considering the infection rate for that age group is quite low? There are trials ongoing for children for uh, some of the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, the trials are being run to assess just that, the safety and efficacy of vaccine for pediatric populations. Um, you're correct that the initial projections would show that herd immunity could be accomplished without vaccinating children. Uh, and in general, children suffer less severe health effects. That being said, uh, we do sometimes see these uh, post-infectious uh, complications like um, the MISC syndrome in children. Uh, so that is uh, a, an immune reaction that occurs several weeks after being infected with COVID-19 and can have quite severe outcomes, including hospitalization and even death. So uh, I think that it is uh, still an important scientific um, question to see if the vaccines can be safe and effective in children because there may be benefit for those populations as well. The other reason is that children, while they're less likely to transmit, they can still transmit COVID-19. And so they can also contribute to um, infecting families, their families, and there may be higher risk people within their families. So there are several reasons why um, assessing vaccine in children remains important.
I know we got to go, but the other part of that question was, is do they experience more symptoms compared to adults with the vaccine? Or is that kind of one of the questions they're trying to answer? That would be one of the questions being asked in the trials. All right, everyone. Hey, I know we've gone long. Um, thank you very much, especially to those of you on the panel who have taken uh, the time out of your day. Uh, we really appreciate the effort you are making to help us overcome the challenges we face in re reaching these different communities, whether those challenges be cultural, language, technology, mobility, geography. Um, those are all things that we're dealing with, and we appreciate the efforts that all you are making uh, to, to help um, you know, get the word out and get the vaccine to everyone and educate everyone on, 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 uh, on COVID and tell you great work in getting out into, in, into the various communities and, and lowering those numbers. It, it, that helps us all. So thank you very much. And thank you to members of the media who asked uh, such thoughtful questions today. We appreciate it. Um, uh, you have seen in the chat uh, that Josh Quint has put some links up for you. And you can go to uh, our websites and you will find that the uh, data is there for you visually uh, and that will be updated daily Monday through Friday. Let's keep an eye on those numbers and we hope that uh, we, we hope that uh, equity can be achieved as we march forward in the vaccination process and we all tamp down COVID. Uh, everyone do me a favor, wear your masks, avoid large gatherings, maintain social distance. Thanks much everybody.